Before I start this week's somewhat lengthy edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shemizaki at Pexels, who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been a very busy week for financial crime this week. There's a decent wedge of news on sanctions, fraud, bribery and money laundering. We'll also round up the week's cyber attacks, but there aren't very many. Let's make a start. As usual, the links to the principal documents mentioned in the podcast can be found in the description. We'll start this week with sanctions. It's been a reasonably quiet week on sanctions. Frankly, much of the significant sanctions work which could have been implemented against Russia seems to have been done, with the consequence that attention focuses on either the usual suspects or, as will be seen, enforcement action against those who've allegedly been involved in sanctions busting. We start with Iran, where both the UK and the EU have been busy. First, the UK government has sanctioned five members of the board of directors of the IRGC Cooperative Foundation. As the press release which accompanied the news provides, the IRGC, the branch of the Iranian Armed Forces responsible for the internal and external security of Iran, has been at the forefront of the repression of protest in Iran, which has seen more than 500 people killed and tens of thousands imprisoned. The UK has sanctions in place on the IRGC in its entirety. Since October, the UK has imposed new sanctions on more than a dozen senior IRGC officials under our Iran human rights regime, most recently on a number of senior commanders on the 20th of February. As a result, the UK has sanctioned five members of the board of directors of the IRGC Cooperative Foundation, an economic conglomerate established by senior IRGC officials to manage the group's investments in the Iranian economy. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. I'll stick with the UK briefly before the second Iran sanctions story. First, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has updated its Russia guidance and issued a license to, quote, permit the wind-down of trust services provided to designated persons otherwise prohibited by Regulation 18C of the Russia regulations. Updated Russia guidance and license can be found in the podcast description. Secondly, on Iran, the Council of the European Union has also imposed sanctions on eight individuals and one entity for human rights violations in Iran. The press release provides, The Council is sanctioning members of the judiciary responsible for handing down death sentences in unfair trials and for the torturing of convicts. It's also sanctioning conservative clerics undermining the freedom of girls and women or propagating hate against women. A member of the Iranian Parliament and its spokesman for the Cultural Commission, the spokesman of the EU-listed headquarters for enjoining right and forbidding evil, the Supreme Council of Cultural Revolution, a body which promoted several projects undermining the freedom of girls and women and discriminating minorities, the Chief for Cultural Affairs and Policy Evolution at EU-listed Islamic Republic of Iran Broadcasting, 
which broadcasts forced confessions from foreign hostages during the 2022-2023 protests. Restrictive measures now apply to a total of 204 individuals and 34 entities. They consist of an asset freeze, a travel ban to the EU and a prohibition to make funds or economic resources available to those listed. A ban on exports to Iran of equipment which might be used for internal repression and of equipment for monitoring telecommunications is also in place. Link to the press release, which also contains links to related documentation, can be found in the podcast description. To Canada now, where the government has imposed bans on the import of Russian aluminium and steel. The press release, linked to which is in the podcast description, provides the following. Through regulatory amendments under the Special Economic Measures Russia's regulations, the importation of all Russian aluminium products, such as unwrought aluminium, aluminium sheets, and finished products including containers and other household items made from aluminium, is now prohibited. Also banned are all primary Russian steel products, including iron and non-alloy steel, semi-finished and finished products such as tubes and pipes, Link to the relevant piece of legislation is also in the podcast description. And finally, on sanctions this week, we turn to Switzerland, where the State Secretariat for Economic Affairs, which is the body with responsibility for implementing and monitoring the sanctions regime, has identified around 100 suspicious cases for examination. The enforcement of sanctions will undoubtedly become the focus of regulatory and enforcement agencies over coming weeks and months, so expect an uptick and in all likelihood a reallocation of resources to this aspect of sanctions. That's it. We'll leave sanctions there and we'll move on to consider fraud. Now, fraud news. Where do we start? Well, we start with a couple of old favourites on the scammers front. First, to the US where Joseph Harding, a former Florida state representative, has pleaded guilty to wire fraud, money laundering, and making false statements in connection with COVID-19 relief. According to the press release from the U.S. Department of Justice, Harding also made a false and fraudulent SBA economic injury disaster loan application in the name of one of his dormant business entities that he submitted to the SBA. By this conduct, Harding fraudulently obtained $150,000 in COVID-19 relief from the SBA, to which he was not entitled. This is a consistent theme. It's one which resonates across the pond in the US, but also here too. The other story from the US relates to a romance scammer. This time it's someone called Kofi Osei who's been sentenced to 54 months imprisonment and two years supervised release for scamming more than $8 million from many, many victims. Links to both stories can be found in the podcast description. In the UK, the Serious Fraud Office has announced the confiscation of a further £92,500 from Achilleus Kalakis, one of the fraudsters involved in the UK's largest ever mortgage fraud case. The SFO press release, which is linked in the podcast description, provides... A recent SFO investigation exposed how criminal proceeds from this fraud were donated towards a theatre at Mr. Kalakis's child's London private school in 2005. 
When the school later removed the Kalakis name from the theatre, the family took legal action against it, revealing the additional funds to the SFO. Maybe they shouldn't have done that. And finally, a positive story on which to end this week's roundup of fraud news, but the BBC has reported that a fraud victim who'd lost around £153,000 has received a refund from Lloyds Bank. The victim was convinced by the fraudster that they were in an abusive relationship and he started to send money. The fraud would have been covered by the banking code had it been carried out with another UK bank account, but the fraud was carried out using a US bank account, uh, though uh, that would not be covered by the code, typically. That being said, Lloyds made the repayment, though they seem to have been influenced to a degree by the particular circumstances and a special vulnerability of the victim. Link to the news story on the BBC website is in the podcast description. Now, I know I said, and finally, but there is another story this week which links to the story I've just talked about, about the old guy who was duped out of 150 grand. The link to this story can be found in the podcast description, and it relates to the payment systems regulator, which has announced this week that its publication of data on authorised push payment scam performance will show how well firms are handling APP scams. The press release, which is linked as I said, provides as follows, this is a crucial step towards greater transparency of performance of firms in the fight against fraud. Firms across the whole payments industry, including banks, building societies and other payment firms like e-money institutions, on both the sending and receiving end of a payment, will be accountable for their performance and encouraged to do more to prevent fraud and look after victims. The action will almost importantly put power in the hands of the consumer, as they will be able to see how well they'll be protected by their bank or building society if they're scammed. This will see a significant step up in the information customers have available to them when choosing who to bank with. All part of this open banking, and what's more open than telling you how a bank performs when it comes to APP scams. We'll leave scams and fraud there for this week and turn to bribery and anti-corruption. It's been quite a quiet week for bribery and anti-corruption this week, but important comments come from the International Monetary Fund following its decision to provide £3 billion under the new extended fund facility for Sri Lanka. It is not uncommon for conditions to attach to IMF support, and the emphasis on this provision seems to have been on corruption. Miss Kristalina Georgieva, the managing director of the executive board of the IMF, commented, The ongoing efforts to tackle corruption should continue, including revamping anti-corruption legislation. A more comprehensive anti-corruption reform agenda should be guided by the ongoing IMF governance diagnostic mission that conducts an assessment of Sri Lanka's anti-corruption and governance framework. The authority should step up growth-enhancing structural reforms with technical assistance support from development partners. Link to just about everything associated with that story can be found in the podcast description. And finally, on bribery and anti-corruption this week, Richard Nephew, the US Secretary 
a U.S. State Department coordinator on global anti-corruption, made introductory remarks at Bulgaria's summit for democracy cohort about anti-corruption and national security. Quite a short set of remarks, really, but the highlight of it is probably the following. It's no secret that no country has completely solved the problem of corruption. While the United States is proud to be a leader in the fight against corruption, we also recognize there is room for us to harden our defenses against the threat it poses. We're working to do just that as we implement the first ever US strategy on countering corruption, which we launched at the first Summit for Democracy in 2021. Our strategy tasks us with addressing corruption holistically, from bolstering the preventative tools to disrupt corrupt acts before they can occur all the way through to accountability, ensuring that corrupt actors cannot operate with impunity. The strategy guides us to focus in particular on transnational corruption and to redouble our engagement with partners around the world and across sectors. We'll continue to work with you, including as a member of the Council of Europe's Group of States Against Corruption. And so I'm pleased to see the organisers of today's event bring together this conversation to discuss how we can collectively learn from one another and continue to collaborate in our efforts. Link to the full remarks can be found in the podcast description, but frankly, they're the best bits I've just shared with you. Now we focus on money laundering. Something to highlight this week from the Serious Fraud Office, which has announced the recovery of $7.7 million from Mario Miranda, who was convicted of money laundering. The press release, which again is in the podcast description, provides Mr. Miranda, 71, was convicted of 37 counts of money laundering in Brazil in 2019 as part of Operation Car Wash, in which Brazilian authorities uncovered extensive and system systemic bribery centred around state-owned oil company Petrobras. Mr. Miranda, a former executive at Petrobras, was sentenced to over six years in prison and ordered to pay $24.75 million in Brazil. In August 2020, the SFO froze a UK bank account that contained over $7.7 million following a report that these funds were linked to Mr Miranda. The SFO investigation subsequently uncovered that these funds had been transferred out of Mr Miranda's main Swiss bank account and channelled through other banks in Switzerland, Malta, Portugal, the UAE and the Bahamas before being deposited in London, where the SFO froze the account. The investigation also exposed how Mr Miranda spent suspected proceeds of crime to fund his extravagant lifestyle. This included over $1 million on hotels and casinos in Las Vegas, as well as $95,000 on a new luxury car. Mr Miranda, Ms. Miranda remains the subject of two ongoing investigations into corruption in Brazil. Now news of further enforcement action being taken by the Gambling Commission. We've been covering these stories variously over the last or many editions of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. An indication, I suppose, of quite how seriously the Gambling Commission takes not only its social responsibility obligations, but also the obligations to ensure that gambling is not used as a platform for money laundering. As it always seems to be with the enforcement action which has been taken by the Gambling Commission against gambling services providers, it 
tends not to be only anti-money laundering failures, but also the failure of social responsibility. This time, the two gambling providers are 32 Red and Platinum Ga- Gambling, rather, who've been fined 4.2 million and 2.9 million, respectively. That's pounds, UK pounds, according to the press release, which is in the podcast description alongside both decision notices the anti-money laundering failures included. 32 Red failed thoroughly to implement the measures described by the money laundering, terrorist financing and transfer of funds information on the payer regulations 2017. The customer account reviews identified that financial triggers for anti-money laundering reviews at 32 Red were too high and not appropriate effectively to manage money laundering and terrorist financing risks. Inappropriate controls allowed significant levels of gambling to take place without a short, within a short space of time without the operator knowing anything about the customer's financial situations. 32 Red customers, subject to a source of funds slash source of wealth request, were, in most cases, not restricted from depositing and gambling during the two-week period allowed by the operator to respond to the request. This resulted in further significant depositing and loss activity occurring. In relation to 32 Red, there was an over-reliance on confidence that funds coming through financial conduct authority regulated firms mitigated or removed proceeds of crime risk. One 32 Red account was not deposit blocked in line with its own policies and procedures after an information request deadline had expired. This allowed the customer to continue depositing, gambling £16,280 in total and losing £8,321 for a further two weeks until their account was blocked. Platinum Gaming's policies, procedures and controls in relation to AML were not appropriate. And finally, Platinum Gaming failed to ensure that its policies, procedures and controls were kept under review and revised appropriately to ensure that they remained effective. Sticking with the UK, the Joint Money Laundering Steering Group, the JMLSG, has published amendments to Sectors 8 and 9 in Part 2 of its guidance. Sector 8 is non-life providers of investment fund products and Sector 9 is discretionary and advisory investment management. Links can be found to both of those in the podcast description. And finally, on money laundering this week, the Government of Canada has proposed further amendments to established regimes aimed at tackling money laundering, terrorist financing and tax evasion. The press release, which is linked in the podcast description, also contains links to the relevant legislation, but it provides, last year, a first series of amendments to the Canada Business Corporations Act were adopted in the Budget Implementation Act 2022 number 1. The proposed legislation now presents a second series of amendments to the CBCA, that's the Canada Business Corporations Act, and amendments to other statutes, namely the Proceeds of Crime, Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Act, the Income Tax Act and the Access to Information Act. These changes will require Corporations Canada to make public some information regarding the beneficial owners of federal corporations, The changes will also, first, introduce protections for whistleblowers, secondly, bolster the powers of Corporations Canada to make inquiries, thirdly, 
introduce an exemption regime for certain individuals who may face harm from public disclosure, including minors. Fourthly, ensure compliance with the new regime through robust criminal and monetary penalties. And fifthly and finally, facilitate information sharing and data validation. I suppose it's a matter of watching this space as the amendments go through the Canadian Parliament. Now, before we turn to the bit of cyber news this week, just a brief detour to market abuse. The government of the UK, in the form of His Majesty's Treasury, along with the Financial Conduct Authority, have completed their review of the criminal market abuse regime, which was a published element of the Financial Conduct Authority's Economic Crime Plan 2019-2022. The joint statement provides as follows. The criminal market abuse regime sets out the United Kingdom's criminal sanctions for insider dealing and market manipulation. It's important in helping the Financial Conduct Authority fulfil its statutory objectives of protecting consumers, enhancing market integrity and promoting competition. The criminal regime has not been materially updated since it was introduced. The review has identified a number of areas where the government believes it will be appropriate to update the criminal regime. This sits alongside the government's acceptance of the recommendations of the Fair and Effective Markets Review in relation to market abuse, where the government will lay secondary legislation in 2023. The Criminal Regime Review has been undertaken within the wider context of regulatory reforms in financial services known as the Future Regulatory Framework Review. The government will consider changes to the criminal regime alongside any reforms to the market abuse regulation through the Future Regulatory Framework Review and will therefore consider how to take forward the recommendations from the Criminal Regime Review at that point. The link to the announcement, which also contains links to other relevant documents, is in the podcast description. Now, we end this week with a roundup of cyber attack news. Not a lot of it, but what is, is always very interesting. We start with the story which we mentioned in last week's roundup, namely the cyber attack on Latitude, the Australian financial services provider. The fallout from the attack continues with news that Latitude Financial has committed to cover the cost of replacing the identification documents of the 330,000 customers who had their data stolen. Good legal and reputational risk management there, I think. Secondly, a cyber attack on DC HealthLink in the United States is believed to have compromised sensitive personal data of US House of Representatives and Senate members. And finally, the luxury car manufacturer Ferrari has been the subject of a cyber attack which has compromised customer confidential information. A ransom demand has been received and Ferrari has declined to pay it. Don't think I've got anything to worry about there. Don't own a Ferrari. That's it for this episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me all over again, all being very well indeed, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Thanks very much, everyone. Have a great week. <laughs>